Betsy Wurzel is one of the first to advocate for Alzheimer's awareness. She is also a center point of connectivity in the Alzheimer's community. If you need something, information, exposure, help, an interview, going through Betsy Wurzel is probably one of the best ways to get it done. But on top of all of that, she conducts herself with the elegance, kindness, and the humility of one that we should all admire. And for this reason, I regard her as a queen in the Alzheimer's community. Thank you for joining me on this episode that I call A Chat with the Queen. And I would love it if you would join me on this journey. And together, we can find hope in the desert. actually have Queen Betsy on the line, and she's actually one of the first people to ever advocate for Alzheimer's. She was doing it when it wasn't cool. She has a podcast called Chatting with Betsy, which is a phenomenal podcast for anybody who is dealing with Alzheimer's, who is a caretaker, who has an interest in Alzheimer's. Betsy, thank you for coming on the show. How are you? Oh, I'm great, Sal. Thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> How are you? Oh, I am very thankful. I'm actually so excited to have you on the show. Like, I don't even know what to do with myself. I'm like, I, I remember that uh, I had a friend one time and his wife was was pregnant and she actually was, she went into contractions and he just stood up and started walking in circles. He didn't know what to do. And that's how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very excited to... Yeah, and you're on the other coast too. That's uh, that's amazing how how Alzheimer's can bring people together. Yes, I'm in New Jersey. Um, maybe too blunt, but I'm my father's daughter. So. Yeah, we love that. We love the blunt. That's what we want. We want the raw. So my my question for you is, um, I, I know about Matt's story, and I would love for you to share that story. And I'm going to do my best not to get choked up. Matt's mom had Alzheimer's, and she died in. 2006. My dad also had Alzheimer's. He died in 2012. And Matt started showing signs, I do believe, in 07, 08. Uh, just as we were getting our marriage on track, because with caring for Matt's mom, our marriage fell apart. I mean, we you know still loved each other. We were living in the same house, but it just wasn't um, a great time for our relationship because Matt had made me the enemy, which I don't recommend. Go for counseling, please. Really go for counseling when you are going through this so you don't make each other the enemy. And Matt starts showing signs at home, opening up, uh, leaving his drawers open, dressing drawers open, uh, mm. walking away from the sink. He was putting recyclables in the wrong place because we separate our recyclables here. I didn't really think anything of it when he forgot how to go somewhere because we only went once a year to the beach called Sandy Hook. And there was construction going on. So, you know, you could kind of like, okay, that's nothing unusual. But then when they were building a left lane to turn it confused Matt. Matt grew up in this area his whole life. He never left this area. 
And I said, Matt, why should it make it confused? You just go straight. Why is that confusing to you? But later on, I, I realized why. And then it was when I was in the hospital in 2009 for two weeks. And Matt said he didn't know how to write out a check. So I explained it to him. Then Josh, our son, who has special needs, told me that daddy didn't know what to do at McDonald's. He didn't know how to order. Because I had to order for him. He didn't know what to do. I said, oh, that's interesting. So I found out that Matt was having trouble at work, just a little bit from a coworker. And I took Matt to a neurologist. And the neurologist um, did the MRI, EEG. They were both abnormal. His brain already showed global shrinkage with non-specified white spots. And he was diagnosed with depression. They said he's too young for Alzheimer's. When we went to a disability meeting, that was in May 2010. And when they told me that Matt didn't know how to do his job and he was becoming dangerous, I was devastated. I started to cry because Matt didn't tell me any of this. And I said to the human resource person, Margaret, why wasn't I called? Because the HIPAA laws. I said, so you would rather have Matt be a danger, put his life at risk than to call me? She said, yes, because he could sue us. And the company doctor, and I don't know if she saw Matt in person or not, suspected dementia without seeing any test results. She suspected it, hoping it would be the type that would be reversible, but she feared it, it wasn't and she was right. Now she didn't see his MRI or EEG. And Matt was treated for depression. But before that, he was tested mm -hmm. with a um, neuropsychologist. And I didn't know back then what I know now, or I would have really ripped into her. She accused Matt of being uncooperative, said he couldn't possibly be that bad, and that he had a deep psychological problem. And so I yelled at Matt for not cooperating. And I was, I was mad. But... Matt told me, Betsy, I did cooperate. I told her I couldn't remember what she just showed me. I couldn't remember what she just told me. And she didn't believe me. And this is, I've heard this story over and over with other people, Sal. The medical community needs to wake up and start believing people and to listen to us because I'm not taking this crap anymore. They need to listen and Matt was seeing a psychiatrist. The antidepressants weren't working. Then he asked me what time Sunday school was that he taught for over 20 years. And he, I said, well, what time is it on your watch? He didn't know how to read the time. So I went back to the neurologist and I said, listen, Matt taught Sunday school for over 20 years. He doesn't know what time Sunday school is. He doesn't know how to tell time. This is no longer depression. You better call it what it is and get him started on mm. the medications. I know it's not going to cure him, but do something. You were the one who actually su first suspected that it was Alzheimer's. I, I hate to say that it's a good thing it ran in his family for me to know, because if I didn't have that uh, knowledge, I would have thought that Matt was depressed. And I would have believed these doctors. And, you know, there's a lot of good doctors out there, but there's also very arrogant doctors out there. And you would know this because you have some experience in the medical field yourself. Yes, I was a licensed practical nurse. And when I was taught back in the Stone Age, 
Um, <laughs> cause I graduated my LPN school in 1976. We were not taught Alzheimer's. It wasn't a word I ever heard. Uh, You've got to be kidding me. Um, that was called organic brain syndrome, senility, hardening of the arteries. I never heard the word Alzheimer's. Wow. Even like my husband's grandmother, I knew she was senile. I didn't know it was Alzheimer's because I just thought, you know, she's senile because that's what it was called. And when my mother-in-law told me that she's getting like her mother, um, but she goes, don't tell Matt. And she started showing signs and she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So when Matt was diagnosed, I'm thinking to myself, Okay, he'll probably be home for two years and, and be gone in four. I was really fortunate that Matt lasted 10 years. He progressed slowly until his last two years. And even his end of life was a battle. And I don't think so that proper medical care, compassion, dignity should be a battle especially with hospice. It should not be a battle. And I want to tell your, your audience that if you see an injustice being done, you have to be an advocate. You don't have to be like Sal. You don't have to be like me. Just as long as you speak up to your doctors, your medical team, that's being an advocate. Can, can you tell us about your hospice experience? Because this is something that I don't think a lot of people really understand when they're as they're going into this process. If you've never dealt with hospice before, it's not that all hospices are bad, but there's some things you got to be ready for. Yes. I will say from my experience that I wish I knew even last year what I know now. I would have hired a senior health advisor to help me navigate hospice because when you are in that situation, you don't have time. I was working. I was doing everything. I didn't have time to interview different hospices. I went with what Met's primary doctor recommended. It was a hospice from the local hospital, which is part of a huge healthcare system in New Jersey. I won't mention the name, but they are huge. And excuse me, <coughs> my home hospice was a nightmare. They um, didn't believe me that Matt was agitated. They didn't believe me that the medications weren't working. And I did call. I was a PIA, a pain, <laughs> pain in the butt. Social worker had the nerve to come to my house. I can understand in a way question how I'm given the medication. She was questioning me, trying to, I felt in my own opinion, trying to intimidate me. And I said, listen, I don't like how you're talking to me. I worked as a licensed practical nurse. I know how to give medication. You're giving more of the same. I'm telling you it's not working. Why aren't you listening to me? And I told her that Matt complained of a headache. And she said, oh, it's not really a headache. That's a Seroquel. Mm -hmm. I said, my husband never hardly complains. I've been with this man 40 years. I've known him for 40 years, married 39. If the man complains, he's got a complaint. Um, she was very snotty to me. And she said, well, if we have Matt up in our 
facilities and get his medication straightened out, you can't do what you want to do. And I said, well, I know that, but I really don't think he's safe being in your facility. He needs a lot of attention. And the Friday before Christmas, Matt fell. He was agitated and he fell. And I called up hospice and they wouldn't come out. Social worker told me nobody calls up hospice as much as I do. And I said, well, I'm my husband's advocate and I will call until there's a solution to this problem. And I, and I think that is an intimidation tactic that, uh, that people use sometimes is basically to shame you into mm -hmm. um, not continuing to be the squeaky wheel when we all know that the squeaky wheel is the one that gets to grease. You see a problem and you are the only person that can actually stand for Matt. He can't stand for himself. That's right. I even told the hospice nurse, Matt was at the end of life. And she goes, no, he's not. He's walking, talking, eating. And I said, you need to educate yourself because not everyone fits a textbook picture of end of life. And, you know, I guess they thought I was this, I'm five foot, 110 pounds. They must have thought, here's this, you know, little quiet, meek housewife. And they didn't know who they were dealing with. The next day, nobody came out, nobody called. Matt was agitated again. I called up. I was upset. And, you know, I said, he's still agitated. Nobody came out. Oh, I forgot. I was busy. And I said, you know what? I'm going to call Medicare because I'm not happy. She said, oh, don't do that. Give him the Valium. I gave him the Valium, Sal. I didn't give him the Seroquel. He talked that whole night. He fell out of bed Sunday morning. I said, um, the medication did not work with, you know, with Matt. He talked all night. I'm having chest pains. He fell out of bed. And somebody come out and assess him. She said, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? I'm telling you, he fell out of bed and he was agitated. And something needs to be done because I, I might end up in the hospital myself. And she, I said, you know what? I'm going to tell you something. This isn't just some patient. This is my husband and I'm going to fight for him. I will call you up every minute of the day till you do something. I'm calling up Medicare. I'm placing a complaint. I'm calling up your regional director. She called the nurse manager and Matt was admitted to the hospice care unit. Because of his agitation, he was on heavy duty IV medications. And after a couple of days, they said to me, now we see what you're talking about, Betsy. Like, do you think I'm making this up? I called up the director of hospice and I told her how I felt. And she goes, well, I'd like to talk to you. I met her and I said, Carmela, this is unacceptable. She goes, I'm sorry, Betsy, this usually doesn't happen. You, uh, apparently someone dropped the ball. And I said, well, my husband's not a ball. My husband should have been assessed. He fell twice. And someone tells me they don't know they're coming out or they're too busy and there's no follow-up. And he's agitated and you don't believe me? Uh-uh, I'm a mama bear. So this is a rhetorical question that, that I want to just pose out there. What kind of depression causes global brain shrinkage? And the reason why I'm posing that question is because oftentimes we will run into this idea, um, and I'm not saying it happens all the time. There's just times where it happens and we need to be cautious of it, where a doctor or someone in the medical field, uh, perhaps a nurse or a practitioner in the medical field, may give some arbitrary answer that's more intended to soothe or shut a person up and send them away than it is to actually deal with the issue. 
That's right, Sal. And I'll tell you something else. Depression is normal with people who are diagnosed with early onset. Tell me, who wouldn't be depressed when you can't drive? You don't know how to do your job. You don't know where things are in your own house. I was depressed watching it. That's a that's a huge point because I point that out a lot in the show, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of us looking at depression as the root of what's going on, it really has to be assessed more of a symptom of what's going on. And that's something that I don't think a lot of people are aware of if they're not familiar with Alzheimer's or are familiar with any form of dementia. Most forms of dementia, including Parkinson's, will fall right into depression as a symptom. That's right. And and then exactly. and also very high levels of frustration and paranoia. If you if you find your loved one is starting to show symptoms of paranoia, if they're becoming explosive very quickly, things like that, those things are also associated with uh, dementia. Am I right? That's right. So that's exactly right. So, something you were saying um, the other day, you and I had a conversation, which uh, I feel so fortunate to be able to uh, have that connection with you because you're so awesome. Um, you said you said that you feel that the HIPPO laws need to change. You believe that? HIPPO laws, yes. If I would have known the information going on with Matt, when I went to the neuropsychiatrist, psychologist with him, maybe she would have believed Matt. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, the doctors would have acknowledged that it was not depression. Okay, you're mm-hmm. depressed. Some people are clinically depressed. They don't feel like getting out of bed. They still know how to tell time on a clock or their watch. They know how to do their job. They may not feel like doing it. They know where things are. They know how to get around town that they grew up in for 50-something years. Mm-hmm. And the, they shoo-shooed. I even told Matt's primary doctor, actually, Matt was in the hospital that December. Right after me, Matt went in. I told his doctor he's having memory problems, and he just blew me away. Like, just, no, no, that's he doesn't have it. He did. Mm-hmm. He didn't know the doctors were coming in. I said, call him when the doctor gets there. He'd forget. And it's really, you know, when you know your loved one, and we know our loved ones better than any medical professional, you need to start listening to us. And when Matt was in the hospital, the hospice unit, the social worker, another social worker called me up on Christmas Eve day. And tell me that we'll be going home. I said, I don't think so. Um, I said, he's not calmed down. How can he be going home? She said, oh, calm down, Mrs. Sloan. That's my married uh, name, Sloan. Uh, we'll get him off of the IV medications, intravenous, and on uh, meds by mouth. I said, yes, you let me know when that happens. So I can monitor him myself. And if I don't think he's safe to go home, he's not going home. I refuse his discharge. And, and I know my rights. She said, Come on. oh, but doctor has to sign off on it. I said, I don't care what the doctor has to do. I'm telling you what I'm going to do. I will call Medicare <laughs> so fast and had that paperwork done. I'll make your head spin. And then I went to the director of hospice. And I said, <clears throat> I said, Carmel, if Matt goes home, which I don't think he's going to, I want a written care plan. And so help me. If a nurse doesn't show up when I think I need one, I'm 
going to call the CEO of this hospital and do not think I won't do it because I will. She said, oh, Betsy, here's my card. You call me 24-7 if a nurse doesn't come out. They knew I was not playing with them. I actually had people coming into the room to meet me because they probably wanted to know who the little spitfire was. Who the dynamite was. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a big deal, folks, because, you know, the, the takeaways from this, the, 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 the steps that she went through is, number one, do not let anyone shame you into not progressing or into not asking questions or into not finding out what's going on. Do not let anyone shame you. And two, take things up to the next level. If you have to call the next person up on the ladder and keep going up until you get the help that you need. And number three, stand on your rock. You stand on that rock, whatever it is you believe in. And as you can see, you know, Betsy is a five foot woman, you know, 110 pounds, but she lit a fire. And something that I'd like to get into um, with you, Betsy, is you started to record your show at that time. I don't even know what inspired you to do that, but how brilliant is that? Where you start to kind of, um, you start to say, I'm going to start documenting this. Can you you tell us about that? Well, I was, I filmed, um, did, you know, videos of Matt, even when he was dying, showed it on Facebook, but I was doing my show chatting with Betsy. Actually, it was um, two years ago that Jeannie White, who's station manager of Passionate World Talk Radio, saw one of my videos and contacted me about an interview. And she had a show and I talked on her show weekly. Then she gave me my own show, (laughs) Chatting with Betsy. And I was doing shows with Matt talking in my ear. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I never knew when he was gonna start up, but I did. And I run a support group on Facebook. Can you tell people about your groups on Facebook? Sure. I belong to several uh, groups, but the one that I started and created with my friend Lori uh, Lapore is hashtag kick Alzheimer's ass movement on Facebook. I have Alzheimer's in the name because that's what affected my life. But all dementias are accepted, all walks of life. I have people who are not caregivers but they just want to be educated on dementias. I have people who have lost their loved ones, such as, I mean, I did, who are still there to help the newbies, I call them. And I created my groups for people not to be alone like I was. I was alone for 14 years with no support. I, I want to inspire caregivers that they can make it through this journey, to be advocates, to speak up when you see an injustice. That is a huge deal. You have resources available. And that's something that I've noticed that you do, Betsy. The more and more that I learn about you, the more and more I find out how you connect people. You put people in a place where they can get the resources that they need. So when people have questions, this is the this is the place to be. That's right. I I mean, there's a lot of great people in my group. They post their, you know, links, they'll post their shows. I encourage people, post your podcast, you know, post educational links. It's, you know, people think, oh, it's competitive. No, it's not competitive. There's no winners in dementia. There's no hmm. winner of, a, you know, being a, a, like a caregiver. We are all have something different to offer. And we're just here. I'm just here to help a caregiver and to help people and to, 
you know, inspire people that you can make it. You need to do self-care. I know it's hard, but you have to do self-care to make it through to the other side. Uh, there's a journey. And there is life after caregiving, Sally. I want to point that out. If you want to be healthy enough to enjoy life after caregiving, you better take care of yourself because the statistic of caregivers dying, is, it's scary, actually. I have, uh, I have two questions for you because I completely agree with that. And I've seen the statistics and um, I'm even afraid to say what some of them are because they're depressing in some ways. But number one, let's just talk about newbies first. What are some things that newbies, and when I say newbies, I'm talking about people who are caregivers and might not even know that they're caregivers necessarily because they may not classify themselves as that, but they have a loved one that's beginning to experience dementia and showing signs of dementia. And these people really don't know what to do. What What are some things that they might need to know or things that they might need to do, these newbies? These I new would caregivers? highly suggest going to a seminar Learn about caregiving. Learn, uh, read books on caregiving. And I would run to a lawyer, elder care lawyer, get your power of attorney, get your financial power of attorney. And I would do a living will if you didn't already have one, advanced directive. So people know your wishes or you, so you know your loved one's wishes. And a lot of people sell have trouble Oh, you know, nothing's going to happen. Um, I can't do that. I'm taking their power away. No, you're not taking anyone's power away. Matt still made decisions as long as he could. I have power. I had power of attorney. You need it. No one is going to talk to you unless you had that power of attorney. And if you had to apply for Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, you better have that power of attorney. They're going to ask you. Um, you know, if you have to file pension papers for your spouse, you have to do Medicare for your spouse, change plans. You need that power of attorney or you're not going to be able to do it. Get the people are afraid to talk about death and dying, Sal. That's part of life. Find out what the, what is your, what are your wishes? What are your loved one's wishes? How do they want to live? How do they want to die? What do they want at their funeral? This isn't being morbid. This is being realistic. There's no cure right now for, and it's not an easy road. And caregivers have to know it's not easy. And people go underground support groups because they're afraid to say it sinks. I don't like caregiving. Mm. And people need to know, you know, like what to expect. Educate yourself on hallucinations and delusions and sundowning. I didn't know any of this with my mother-in-law. I said, she took me to dementia school. I didn't know how to, I did not deal with her hallucinations, but I didn't know, I didn't know anything. There wasn't that much information 18, 19 years ago like there is now. There's the information highway. You can learn so much now that I couldn't. Uh, I want to say, if you are new, to uh, caretaking, you need to go to Chatting with Betsy. You need to listen to her show. And the reason you need to listen to her show is because every week she has some new resource, some new piece of information, some new piece of guidance that is going to help you on your journey. She is amazing. And that is a, a, a huge starting point. 
Um, but what I'd like to know, Betsy, also, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with your mother-in-law? Because that is what you said, put a trial on your on your marriage. And I think that people don't necessarily expect for dementia to be a trial on their marriage. Oh, yes. If the other person's not supportive, um, I would tell Matt, you know, you have to take him on to the doctor. And for a year, I fought with him. And he would say, why don't you take her? When she was hallucinating, um, Matt didn't believe me. He didn't believe that she was aggressive and tried to attack me, throwing things at me like man of the house. And I had to tell him, you need to get your mom on some medication or I'm leaving you. I didn't know what to do with my mother-in-law. I would say, I'm not, she would accuse me of stealing. And I would be like, I'm not stealing from you. <laughs> and I, I didn't handle it well because I didn't have the knowledge. So having knowledge, knowledge is power, they say. I've been in those shoes. I did not expect for my father to take on that type of um, aggression toward me either. And uh, there were were hallucinations and accusations getting thrown at me. I remember one time my dad told me that my sister was in town. And my sister lives a a distance away. You know, she lives on the other side of the state. And I was like, uh, really? He's like, yeah. I said, well, when did she get here? And he's, oh, she was here last night. Anyway, I talked to my sister. She's like, I, I, I haven't been out there in years. You have to go with it. And yes, folks, you have to fib. I know you were brought up not to lie, but either you lie and you calm your loved one down, or you're going to say the truth and you're going to be agitated and they're going to be agitated. And they feed off of our energy. It took me a long time to learn that. They do feed off of our energy. Mm. And, and, you know, I, I'm so glad you mentioned I, in, in the dementia handbook, I call it an affectionate deception. And uh, I've heard it also called a compassionate lie. But it's I think it's very difficult for people because people who are honest and they want to have an honest relationship, they really don't understand that you do have to do that. And uh, what, what I'm curious about is because uh, you handled that. Beautiful. That was from I mean, that was experience. amazing. What gave, how did you know and how to handle that? How did you know how to deal with that? And learning. Watching um, videos and learning from other caregivers. That's how caregivers learn. We learn from other caregivers. And then I knew when Matt was going to hallucinate, and I had discussed this with Josh, don't argue with them. They're, they can't live in our world. We have to live in their world. You can't bring them back to the reality because they don't live in our reality. And you're just going to waste your time and stress yourself out and make things worse. When Matt told me that he he saw his mom and his deceased relatives, I would say, oh, well, did you have a nice visit with your mom? Tell her I said hi. I wouldn't argue with him and say, your mom's dead and get him upset. Um, when he told me and going home, a lot of people with dementia say they want to go home. Matt lived in his childhood home. He was home. So I would say, Matt, I will take you home after breakfast. Go have breakfast and I'll take you home. Then he would forget about it. So, you know, and sometimes when they say they're going, they're going home. They might be talking about they want to feel safe again. We have to make them feel safe and loved and secure. Right. 
Right, right. The number and 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 there is a huge difference between not having a threat and feeling safe. I love the fact that you spoke about not feeling ashamed of getting out there and meeting new people, dating, or just engaging on any level. Because I know some people. Um, I have a friend in particular who's who who recently lost uh, her spouse, and she is going through that kind of. Um, shame and and it's it's tough because sometimes we don't even necessarily want to admit that it is shame what what about uh bereavement groups can, can you tell people uh a few maybe bereavement or mourning or groups that can help them with the grief yes i would suggest um well your your hospice should be offering a bereavement group um mine did but then it was canceled and I did receive a letter from them. I called them up twice and they didn't call me back, which is no surprise. Your hospice is supposed to follow up with you for one year. I would suggest I'm getting counseling from my senior center for free um, by over the phone. Check your local senior centers. Call them up because of, you're not allowed to go there in person, probably. So call them up. Um, I knew that they offered free counseling uh, where I live. Go to your Alzheimer's Association, ask them. Call your county of aging and see if they have anything. Here in New Jersey, where I live, I just went on a bereavement group virtual today. So check your local mental health hospitals. I, I guess you could Google. There's Grief Share. Check with your local places of worship. They might offer bereavement groups. Wow. Um, Betsy, I cannot tell you how much information you have transferred in this. Um, this was just an amazing interview. And I really, I have to thank you so much. You are, Betsy, you are amazing. And you are paving a road for um, everyone. Oh, well, thank you. And you're welcome. Thank you very much. I want people to know, Sal, that you know, it wasn't easy getting to where I am today. It takes self-work and it's, I have to work at myself um, every day. I'm a work in progress, even at the age of almost 63, <laughs> I'll be 63 in December, but I feel like my life is just beginning. And, you know, you're never too old to learn. Uh, look for me on Facebook, my own personal page, Betsy Wurzel, W-U-R-Z-E-L. I have my group hashtag kick Alzheimer's ass movement on Facebook and chatting with Betsy is on all major podcasts, Google, Apple, we're on Amazon music, YouTube, wherever you hear podcasts, you'll hear chatting with, with Betsy. And it's I believe it's free to subscribe to most of these places. One of the things you told me, you gave me some great advice. You said, break this stuff up. When you listen to these podcasts, it's okay to break them up into sections. Listen to them while you're washing dishes, while you're driving, whatever, and break it up into sections. Listen to 20 minutes here, 30 minutes there, whatever, right? That's right. That's what I had to do with Matt. Betsy, thank you. Thank you so much for all that you do. You're welcome. Thank you, Sal. It was an honor.
them feel safe and loved and secure.